Hello, everyone, and thank you again for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Lillian Sue, and I'm the medical director of the CVICU here at Phoenix Children's. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Ndidi Musa. She is a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Seattle Children's Hospital and professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She recently started a new position as the director of the internal coaching program at the University of Washington Department of Pediatrics, and I'm thrilled that she's here to speak to us about it and her path that brought her here. Welcome, Ndidi, and thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast. Thank you, Lillian, for this great opportunity to share my journey. I I really am excited about it, and I am excited about this great opportunity that you have given me. So thank you very much. So I probably didn't do your history enough justice. What exactly is your formal title? I I know at some point you were an interim division chief of your division there at Seattle Children's in cardiac ICU. So let's bring the listeners up to date. Um, What is your current role and title so that we may address you accordingly? So we hired a new division chief. And so I stepped down from that role. And in the interim, I got this new role because this is something that I had been planning and preparing for for the last nine months to a year. So my current role is the director of the internal coaching program for the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington. And and part of the reason, Didi, that we're speaking today is I saw your announcement for this role on LinkedIn, and I do think that one of the roles of PCICS, and specifically of this podcast, is to give our listeners an idea of alternative career paths that are available in the cardiac ICU. So can you just kind of take us back and let us know, how, how did you actually first get interested in coaching? So my my interest in coaching actually started when I first got coached. <laughs> you know, I, I tell people that we in medicine have two ways of viewing coaching. One, if you're in the C-suite or you're an emerging leader, you get coached. But exactly. for everybody else, it's a punitive reason. Either you have a problem and so you need you need some fixing. So they send you for coaching. So I happened to, you know, I was in Milwaukee for quite a while. Um, I, I started my, actually, my cardiac ICU career in Milwaukee. And then I moved to Seattle in 2013. Okay. When I moved here, you know, obviously I moved from the Midwest to the Pacific Northwest. And I then had some communication difficulties. And I was asked to get some coaching. I actually was upset with that idea because I, as far as I knew, coaching was punitive. If you had a problem, and this was telling me that I had a problem. But I had a good friend who told me that I should look at it from the perspective of them investing in me. Mm-hmm. And I used the word investing because that's the word he used. And actually, that changed my whole perspective of coaching. So I met with my coach. And I decided, okay, this is an investment. Let me see what's all about. I had never had coaching before. I'd heard about, 
you know, coaching for other people who had behavioral issues. And I didn't think I had behavioral issues. This was just a miscommunication and it ended up being a coaching opportunity for me. But I embraced it and I, I, I used it to my own advantage. And I learned a lot about myself and how I communicate. And he gave me tools that allowed me to begin to think about how I approach communication, at least in this environment. And that really helped me. And then for a while, I didn't do much about coaching until, you know, COVID happened. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't involved in, you know, I only went to work when I had service responsibilities. So I sat down, so I had a lot of time on my hands because I used to travel a lot, trying to build critical care capacity, cardiac critical care capacity in resource limited settings. I so see. I travel some teaching, I would travel and do some uh, uh, building and, you know, things like that, that really took up a lot of my time. So I didn't have time to reflect on where my career was going. I had attained you know, my professorship in academic medicine. And so that was at least the the goal of staying in academic medicine. It, well, other reasons, but one of the highest, you know, achievements was for me to become a full professor. Just before we go a, a lot further, could you just explain to the audience just a little bit more about these behaviors that, and maybe some concrete examples of you alluded to the transition from Midwest to Pacific Northwest being difficult. Can you maybe just describe some of these situations so that maybe our some of these will resonate with our listeners? And it sounds like you actually took it in a very mature way after your friend counseled you and you made the most of it. But just to illustrate, what examples did actually people give, give you? Well, people felt I was very critical, you know. Um, and again, it stemmed from the fact that, you know, I, I came from a program where, you know, we had we had a way of doing things. And, you know, I was sort of like more mature. I wasn't out of fellowship. I'd practiced for a long period of time. I was set in my ways. And, you know, I, I needed to do things in a certain way because that was what I appreciated and that was how I had been doing it for a long period of time. And when you move to a new environment, it's usually good to sort of like take a step back and see what people actually do rather than saying, feeling that your way is actually a better way because there's several ways to skin a cat if one, one wants to put it that way. And not only that, you know, Seattle was very much into clinical standard work. So it wasn't about so much about, okay, how you approach things. They had, you know, standardization of how we treated this patient. Not that Milwaukee didn't have that, but, you know, there was some allowance for, you know, you to use your judgment in, 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 in managing a patient. So I found it a little bit difficult initially uh, because there were things which we didn't actually do, you know, uh, you know, and I, I wondered why we did them here, you know. Uh, did. To me, these things didn't make a lot of sense. But instead of sort of like taking a step back and saying, okay, why do we do these things? How can I um, 
you know, help in the transition. I, you know, I was sort of trying to ex ex exert myself and that led to a lot of communication difficulties, you know, as I said, because really truly they were all based around how I communicated. And so I, I learned a lot, as I said, about myself, you know, how I approach things and, you know, being a good listener was so crucial. So looking yeah. back, you actually thought the assessment was fair and clearly you grew from the process because you then became the chief of, of your division. So really a success story and really kind of an ad for coaching, which is what we're going to talk about today. Yes, yes, yes. Really an ad for coaching because even though initially to me it felt like it was punitive, when I transformed my approach to it and embraced it as an investment in me in particular, it transformed the way I did things and my whole perspective and outlook on my career. So more specifically, how long were you coached and what would you say were the biggest takeaways from it, first a student and now as teacher? Well, I was coached for, I think, three months, which is short, short relatively short. Um, but I, I think we were, I, I was coached every two weeks. So that, you know, that allowed me to have at least six sessions to every single month. And um, the, that allowed me to, you know, begin to work on my strengths, you know, identifying what my strengths were, working on my strengths, and then looking at my weaknesses. How can I adjust my mindset, you know, in terms of my weaknesses? and focus a lot on the strengths that I had, that I brought to the table. And then coming from a place of curiosity, you know, rather than a fixed mindset, you know, coming, asking the question, I'm curious to understand or to know, you know, so that that really helped me begin to soften my tone because I came with a with a more with a, a a an attitude of willing to learn from the person. Yes, I had been doing this for many more years than all the people that that except for you know Harris and I. You know Harris was the leader at the time, and I more or less are equivalent in our career you know trajectory. So everybody else was much younger than us, and so. It allowed me to learn from even people that were younger than me, you know. And so I that really changed the way I communicated and transformed my relationships with people and how people saw me and how I showed up to work every single day. I showed up with an attitude of I'm going to learn. But I'm fascinated by this just because I actually didn't know that part of your story when I read about your new path on LinkedIn. But I find it so fascinating that you were actually a student first and then have now become a coach yourself. 
And just for full disclosure to the audience, you, in fact, are the person that helped me find my coach when I started my medical directorship here at Phoenix Children's. I actually did negotiate a contract where a period of coaching was actually part of my transition from being a cardiac intensivist to becoming the medical director of a unit. So thank you for helping me find the person who then ended up coaching me. One of the things I think is really interesting about what you said and the difficult transition is, I don't think that in this era, we should be afraid to talk about some of the things that maybe other people are more, that maybe other people have difficulty talking about and specifically talking about how gender and race can play a role in the way that you are perceived. And I think for both of us, we are both female and non-white in a leadership position. So how important was that and working through some of that in your choice of a coach? And how much did your coach actually help you with some of those things that maybe for a white male are not as much of an issue? Well, interestingly enough, all the coaches I've had have been white, white male. I really truly haven't had a, 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 a coach that has been female or of the same gender. And in tr the reason I say that is because, you know, sometimes I realized that I had a lot of limiting beliefs because of my race, because of my gender. And I struggled a lot, you know, thinking that things were out of my control when I had a lot of control over my circumstances. Now, yes, it's not that these things don't exist, but it is how I respond and react that is important in terms of me going forward. Can you help define what a limiting belief is for the audience? Well, for me, a limiting belief was, take for instance, you know, I would be afraid to apply for positions of leadership because I would already rule myself out because I'm black, I'm the only black. And you know, everywhere I went and practiced, I was the only black intensivist. So you can imagine the, the burden that I carried. And so I, I always said to myself, well, nobody's gonna give me the position. Nobody's going to even think of me because obviously I would see Younger people come behind me. I've been there for quite some time. They will get positions. They will get, you know, leadership positions, and I'll still be there. I tried many times. I went. For, I, I, you know, I became a clinical scholar. You know, so I was doing things. I found, you know, to enhance myself, but never been recognized for the things that I brought to the table that impacted me in terms of my career growth. And so do you feel, what I'm hearing from you is you felt like there was certainly maybe a role that the system is playing in how you felt, but you also recognize that you yourself had more power in those circumstances than you recognized. And are you saying that your coach actually helped you work through some of those things? That is exactly what the coach helped me do. 
the coach helped me see the power I had. And with that, it changed my perspective. You know, when I applied for the, the interim position, when I actually wrote out the things I had done, I couldn't believe that it was the same person because for a long time, I could not see it. But with coaching, I was able to express myself in a way that brought out the good that I had done, the, the, the wealth of experience that I had. And for you to sit comfortably in it, and own it in a way. And then that helped you put your hat in the ring for yes. the leadership position that you got. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, and so it was, it was, I was confident. I knew already that I would have the position because, you know, I was, I felt very, I mean, compared to everybody else, I, I was qualified for the position. And so it was really, an eye-opener to the shift that had to occur for me to get to that point. And I, I really am grateful for a coach. And I, I was happy when you told me that you were you applied, you know, you put it in, in your in your you know requirement to get a coach because you know when you make transitions, a coach can help you make that transition smooth. So that you don't go through the process that I went through, the frustration, the feeling of, boy, oh, yeah, I'm black again. You know, <laughs> I'm the only one here that's black. You know, these are the things that are happening to me because, you know, and yeah, while some of them may be true based on the system, you don't have to accept that system as it is. There are ways that you can get around it so that you are not phased by the system and beaten down by the system and you can rise above it and actually put your name in the position now i do want to say you know and commend seattle children's because we actually went through a process where you know they started to look at how they treated you know people of color you know you know uh, minority uh, people and made some changes in fact one of the reasons I got the job is that uh, our chief chair of pediatrics said, we're not appointing somebody as interim ch chief. You're going to all apply <laughs> if you want the job. So it, it, it took away the bias of having to appoint somebody that we want, rather, you know, look at the resume, look at what the person has done and use that as a, a barometer for deciding who gets the position. Yeah, fascinating. And now here you are ready to give back from everything that you've learned from coaching, being coached, to now having a position where you are now a coach. So Ndidi, are you also still doing clinical medicine or is this gonna be a full-time coaching role? I wish I could say that I was gonna give up my clinical medicine. <laughs> You have to have enough FT to give up your clinical medicine and be a full-time coach, and we're not there yet. So I don't, I don't think the surgeons would be very happy if you <laughs> gave up your clinical time. I know Dr. McMullen pretty well, and he always spoke so highly 
of your clinical judgment and how if there was a sick patient in the unit, he always trusted you to be able to turn that patient around. So I'm thankful, and as I'm sure the many patients of Seattle are thankful that you are going to stay somewhat at the bedside. So how much clinical time will you be, how much non-clinical time will you be doing coaching? Who will you be coaching? And what do you really feel like the purpose of your role is? So first of all, I have point, I negotiated point two FTE for this particular position. And they, you know, I came, I came up with a proposal to coach early career faculty. Um, again, they're transitioning from fellowship, they're transitioning from, you know, they're early in their career. This is a great opportunity for them to get the benefit of coaching so that they can stay focused and, you know, clearly come out with clarity and purpose in their, in their desire to be where they want to be. So I, I negotiated this position. Initially, when the Department of Pediatrics was training, they decided to train 14 uh, leaders as coach. So they're not, they didn't go through the rigor of coaching that I went through, but they went through a, a program, a modified program to help them ask deep coaching questions. So I came up with this proposal to actually serve as a structure for who they would be coaching rather than them going through the program and then deciding, okay, I'm going to coach somebody from my my department or my division. I change the position, the, the program, so that they're not coaching within their di division. They're coaching people out of their division to allow for, because coaching, you know, there the, there has to be transparency and you know the the coachee has to feel confident that what they are telling you is is going to be confidential and. They, you know, feel free to be able to share so that they can get the help that they need. So I wanted to avoid those conflicts. So to get a better sense, there are, you said there are 14 clinical coaches mm -hmm. and are you helping to oversee those 14 people? Yes. Okay. Yes. Are you also going to have your own? Yes. So I decided that we, I would coach two people and each of them will coach one person. And then I will have um, what we call coaching clinics. Uh, I was going to partner with another um, ICF certified. I'm not yet ICF certified, but I'll be ICF certified once I you know, get 50 more hours. And so ICF I stands for? International Coaching Federation. Okay, perfect. So that's like a, you know, the uh, body that, that certifies uh, coaches in general in, within the United States. So I partnered with this lady and we're going to have coaching clinics every four to six weeks for the coaches to have access to us, to come up with, you know, what are the, what, what's going, working well for them? What are the difficulties they're having and to help them sort of navigate, you know, questions that they, they feel that, you know, are difficult for them to answer, you know, and not only that, you know, just, having a sense of presence because when you're coaching somebody you have to have it you have to be listening at a level that you can hear exactly what they're saying rather than you trying to tell them because coaching is not telling it's so different from mentoring so different from sponsorship 
is so different from advising. The, the coachee comes up with the agenda and you coach based on what it is they want rather than what you think they want. So, you know, we do have to work with them to develop that kind of coaching presence. And so we have coaching clinics every four to six weeks. It's going to be a six-month coaching uh, period with once a month uh, coaching. So six sessions in six months. So that because they're not going to be, they're not getting FT, FT for, for this program. So I don't want to make it burdensome to both sides. So um, I thought maybe once a month would be helpful. It's better than nothing but at least hopefully be helpful for an hour. So that was what I put in my proposal and the um, chair of pediatrics loved it and gave me 0.2 FTE. Now, the hospital actually paid for my way to go to the Hudson Institute, which was quite expensive. And I promised them that I was going to come back and help them build a coaching program. So I, this is just the department of pediatrics. I'm hoping that I probably would get some more FTE whilst I work on building a, a coaching program for the hospital so that we can change. I, I, I don't like to use the word change, but create a culture of coaching within our institution. That's my, that's my overarching goal, to create a culture of coaching. We interrupt this episode to thank the sponsor of our episode, Johns Hopkins University and Medical Center. The national-ranked Johns Hopkins Children's Center is the birthplace of pediatric cardiology and the historic Blue Baby operation. From birth to adulthood, the Blaylock-Towsing-Thomas Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center treats all patients with congenital and acquired heart disease. Their comprehensive congenital heart program provides the full spectrum of care for patients and families, including congenital heart surgery, heart transplantation, and ECMO-BAD. Their 12-bed Cardiac Intensive Care Unit is the only one of its kind in the state of Maryland and offers comprehensive cutting-edge procedures for treating pediatric heart disease. So I had interrupted you earlier when you were talking about your path and you had talked about it was COVID, it was the pandemic, you had had this great coaching experience. So what were the actual steps you took? Because there are going to be listeners out there thinking, hey, I might want to be a coach one day. How did she do it? So as I said, you know, because of COVID, I, 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 I joined this uh, leadership course that really opened my eyes to, co to, to coaching. And so I decided, you know, based on what I see, you know, medicine is in a crisis right now. We have physicians leaving the workforce because of burnout. And, you know, for so many other reasons, people are frustrated uh, with the system. You know, our uh, FES scores are low, you know, just all those things. People are burdened. And so I thought to myself, what can coaching do to break the cycle? And that's actually what triggered me to actually go and get a certification because certification actually gives me credibility. So it's not just the certification. I also wanted the International Coaching Federation certification, which then gives me the opportunity to coach even at a higher level. And, you know, 
coaching physicians is not an easy job. <laughs> As a physician myself, you know, I know how we think. And so this, the, the need to study, you know, how we coach, the need to, you know, practice myself with other people who are not, not necessarily physicians, but are coached at a higher level really helped me um, hone my skill set in coaching. And, you know, with the Hudson Institute, it was a rigorous process. You know, once a, uh, every week I met with my small learning group, you know, and we coached each other. So we learned the skill set of listening, of coaching, of being able to decipher what the issue is. Not coach to the problem, but coach to the individual. And by that, I mean, you know, the individual may, may, may tell you, this is what is going on with me. But there's some underlying root cause and being able to identify what the underlying process is so that you can coach the person. They actually have, believe it or not, we all have internal resources as well as external resources. And it's helping that person identify what's internal to them that they could use to, you know, um, address what their issues are. And the name of this institute, could you just spell it for the listeners? I don't think many of us are familiar with it. There are many institutes out there. Hudson is just one of them. H-U-D-S-O-N. It's just one of them. And was that online or was that in person? No. Well, we had, we had, the reason I chose that was that we had three in-person, um, um, we had to be there in person three times. So at the beginning of the course, which was in January, we were there for four days. And they, you know, they told us what coaching is all about. We learned a lot about, you know, listening. We learned a lot about delving deep into, uh, you know, the coaching, the skill set that we need. Then we had to have um, 10 hours of coaching. And then we had to record the coaching so that we had a supervisor listen to our coaching session and give us feedback as to whether because they're they're sort of um 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 the the international coaching foundation uh, federation has competencies we have to follow those competencies as we coach and so, were you were you the only medical professional actually interestingly there were three of us <laughs> i was the only pediatrician there was, uh, there was one in family practice and the other one was OBGYN. So three out of a group of, there were four, four groups of nine. So there were three of us out of nine times four is uh, 36. So there were nine, there were three out of 36 people who were, then there was a dentist as well. So somebody else in medical practice. And what did you say to the hospital to get them to fund you to go? Well, see, I shared my story, my journey with the vice president, the vice uh, president of medical affairs. You know, I, I, I told him about my, what I just shared with you, how I got coaching and how I felt that it was an investment. And I, I started to, you know, just 
let him know that because of where we are today, this is the right choice. In fact, if you look in the literature now, you actually see things about coaching, which wasn't there 10 years ago. You know, people are looking at, because we've been, we've been, we've been mentoring people for years. We've been advising people for years. We've been sponsoring people for years. And yet, you know, many physicians are leaving the workforce. Even here in Seattle, it was staggering to see how many people have left in the last two years. Now, not all of them left because of, you know, they are being frust frustrated with the job. Some of them left for other opportunities. Some of them left because of family reasons. But at least, you know, in the literature, 20 to 30% of physicians are, in fact, that's, a, that's an underestimate, are burnt out. You know, and they, you know, there's some work out of, um, um, I think it was Mayo Clinic, where they look at physicians who were coached versus those who were not coached and saw that those who were coached actually had better resilience, better, uh, less symptoms of burnout. And the Cleveland Clinic actually published in the, you know, uh, hospital, not hospital medicine, they uh, a journal that they they were able to retain physicians. So retention was, was what they looked at, the cost of retention as a result of instituting a peer coaching program. And while we're talking about physician coaching and you and I both use coaching in our careers, certainly this is applicable to anyone in our field who is about to take a leadership position or wants to grow themselves, certainly APPs and nurses who are assuming these leadership sort of positions, I could certainly see how this invest investment could pay off for, for any of them. We're yeah. kind of wrapping up our last couple of minutes. I'd love to just hear from you and Didi, any words of advice that you want every person to know about coaching, maybe any myths that you want to dispel in our last couple of minutes? Yeah. One of the things I want to say is that as I, as I alluded to, that um, coaching is not the same as advising or mentorship. It is different. It is different because you engage in with your coach in deep thinking and questions that will help you unlock areas of your life that you have not even considered that impact you in a negative way. I mean, so I always tell people that it's, it, it gets you from where you're stuck, if you're stuck, to where, or if you, a place that you are, to where you imagine yourself that you want to be. So it unlocks your potential, not just your personal potential, but your professional potential. And you start to see things from a different perspective. You gain self-awareness. You gain a growth mindset because you're, 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 you're looking for opportunities. You start to see opportunities that you had never even considered before. Amazing. 
I feel like we've learned so much from you and Didi and this alternative career path. One last question I just wanted to make sure we asked you was, what do you believe that healthcare leaders struggle with the most? They struggle with a myriad of problems. You know, first of all, you know, the fact that we have so many people exiting the workspace, not just workplace, not just physicians, but nursing, all these things. And, you know, the rising cost of healthcare, you know, um, and then I talked about physician burnout, you know, not just physicians, but even our APPs, you know. So those those are just a few things that I can crystallize that they struggle with. There's so many problems in the system. And yet it becomes very difficult to approach them. There's no one size fits all. For instance, the EMR. Coaching cannot necessarily help the EMR <laughs> system. So that, that has to be fixed to make it, um, to make people feel like they, they're not frustrated with things that, that take their time away from the patient, you know, so they can, they can work. So some of the things that I, I think that they can do is, yes, invest in coaching, especially onboarding, onboarding during the time of onboarding. I really feel that that's a great opportunity. I've read some, some literature that says that, you know, if people are onboarded well, they tend to stay. And I think that's an area of opportunity to, to just provide what coaching is and to coach, give them an opportunity to be coached even as they make the transition. Because transition is always fraught with opportunities, you know, sort of frustration. Yeah, <laughs> Things don't go well, you get frustrated. And when you get frustrated, you're not thinking about how you show up or how you're presenting yourself. You are frustrated. And yet, sometimes the frustration doesn't necessarily serve you well. So that's a good opportunity, I think, to provide people with other avenues to deal with the frustration and even to come up with ideas. Because when you create a culture of coaching, you create opportunity for innovation. Your advice would be that if people are going through periods of transition in their careers, coaching could serve as a useful tool to help through that transition. Because even the most adaptable person, when they are in a new environment, in a new context, things can get misinterpreted or misunderstood and you could be perceived in a way that perhaps your old place didn't perceive you because they knew you really well or gave you the benefit of the doubt. But at the new place, you're not necessarily going to get that. That's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah. So you're speaking from experience. I and. Clearly, people who have struggled with something are often the people who can then teach the next person the best because they themselves are the person who actually had to go through that thing. And so they actually have real world advice about how the next person could potentially walk through that same challenge with perhaps a little bit more poise. 
I, I want to thank you and Didi for your time. I want to congratulate you and Seattle Children's and the hospital and the administration who seems like they have the foresight to realize that this is a very important tool for people to have so that we can retain a workforce that more and more, I think there is a lot of conversation about burning out and how we're all going to stay positive because at the end of the day, the children of Seattle and of Phoenix do need all of us to perform at our very best. Yes, 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 yes. So thank you for this great opportunity. And, you know, it's been a, it's been fun talking about something that I'm passionate about and my next step, because this is sort of my exit. You know, you I'm in the tail end of my career. I've done a lot of things. <laughs> And this is sort of the, I'm, I'm young to just go sit down and <laughs> raise You're too young for that. That's right, Ndidi. No, you're not no, getting well, away from us so that I tell quickly. That I repurposed myself. And this is sort of a, it, it has given me a new sense of vigor. And I approach my work with a new sense of vigor. Well, the people that you're going to coach are, are lucky to have you as a resource and I look forward to hearing more stories about your, your coaching days. Thank you very much. You know, I, the one last thing I wanted to say, we, we, we uh, sent out applications and we had only 15 spots. We had 20, I just got a third one, 23 people apply to be a coachee. Yeah. Coachee, be coached in your yeah. program. Yes, yes. Oh, wonderful, yes. wonderful. Yeah, so clearly there's a need. There's definitely a need. That told me that there's a need. There's definitely a need, yeah. And it's only one week I gave them to apply. Wow, okay. <laughs> and how do you think you're going to select them? Well, I'm trying to convince the leaders as coach that we all should coach more than one person. So I see. I'm going to be willing to coach three to four people and then they can coach two each to be able to... Because I, I feel... When I read their stories, it's hard for me to say, no, you don't, you can't wait. Yes. So yeah. I think we'll, we'll just absorb everybody. Well, good for you. Well, well thank you again. Thank you again for speaking with me today about coaching and this exciting new path in your career. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member of PCICS and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and many more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.